31,000, 45,000, the story of two trains of French resistance. A podcast by Mathieu Landour Engel. Roger Debar, 46,231. For Rennes, for Jean. Today is the day, at the end of October 1942 in Auschwitz. The weather in Poland can be quite black and white, either boiling hot or chillingly cold. From September to the end of October, the weather can easily go from 25 to 7. Roger Debar enters the rivier, sick, his skin covered in boil. He doesn't want to go to the rivier, but every single part of his body hurts. He is treated, yet sent to Block 21, a place from which one is easily selected to the gas chambers. He hears that a few 45,000 are here too. The place is big, crowded. It takes a while to find anyone. But Roger meets with his old friend, Jean Toussaint. A few days ago, as he was working at the canal commando, a drain fell on Jean. He broke his leg. It hurt a great deal, but nobody treated Jean the whole day. Jean had to wait for the day to end come back with everyone else at the camp and join the rivière. By the time a doctor came to see him, his leg was long infected. Gangrene had spread. It was already too late. The doctors did nothing. Everyone knows Jean will eventually be selected. The doctors, Roger, even Jean. Jean keeps a good morale. Roger is devastated. A few years earlier, when France lost the war, Roger was a 19 years old hairdresser. He wasn't a communist yet, he was part of a clandestine organization, the National Front. Together with a group of young people from Casey Centre and around, they started building a radio to listen to the BBC. They sabotaged electric lines, and they secured ways for soldiers and prisoners from the occupied zone to cross the border. They even discovered an underground aqueduct under the Saint-Quentin Canal, with, which the German authorities didn't know about and created a safe passage for the soldiers and prisoners to cross the French border. To them, they had to rally other people to their cause, let them know that the war was not over. Other countries were still fighting against Germany. France may have lost, but the French people were not done yet. This is one way to resist, taking the streets and expressing yourself. So they prepared a gathering in the street of Cassis Centre for the 1st of May 1942. The police arrested them all. That same day. Right before it even began. Roger didn't have time to say goodbye to Rennes, the girl he loved. Back to the present. Jean is finally selected on the 30th of October. He turns to Roger and quietly says goodbye. He tells him to keep being brave. He climbs the truck and leaves to Birkenau, to the gas chambers, to the crematorium. Roger watches him go, and he makes another decision. He wants to survive, for Jean, for Rennes, for himself, for his last name to carry on. Even, for all those reasons, 
and for the world to know what is happening here. So he simply hides. Whenever OSS comes and selects him, Roger hides behind doors, he hides below beds, he hides under provisions, sheets he hides. He hides just like he kept on hiding the signet ring Ren gave him a few months before he was arrested. It is almost impossible to keep your belongings in the camp. You either lost it along with your luggage when you stepped off the train, or it was sealed in a bag as you had to undress to put on your uniform. Yet as he was being shaved, Roger had a chat with a hairdresser. He told him two things. The first was that when he will be asked which skill he has, he should say electrician. It is an easier job than the others, and knew it well. Roger might have had less experience than in hairdressing, yet he knew enough. The second thing was that whatever belongings he'll give to the SS, he should expect never to see it again. Ever. So Roger kept with him his most precious possession, the signet ring Ren offered him. And hiding that ring for that long makes him hopeful, he can hide other things, including himself. Three times, Roger is selected to die, and Roger hides, then reappears. The SS always look for him, but they get eventually bored and leave. But the more Roger stays, the weaker, the thinner he gets. Roger finally gets out of the block one morning and begs a commando lead to take him to work. The commando lead looks at him, a man who weighs maybe 40 kilos. He hesitates. But there is something in Roger's eyes, a drive, a purpose. So he accepts. Roger will survive. Thank you for listening to this episode of the 31,000 and 45,000, the story of two trains of French members of the Resistance. My name is Mathieu Landau-Rengel and I have never really been that interested with stories of deportation before I learned about what happened to a member of my family. This episode was about Roger Debar, a young man who fought and survived by hiding. Auschwitz is a smaller place than Birkenau. Uh, but there are still a lot of prisoners in the place. The number rose uh, to uh, 16,000 at one point in 1944. Therefore, hiding inside uh, the blocks or the river was difficult but not impossible. Uh, there are a lot of accounts of prisoners hiding around or exchanging their numbers. By exchanging numbers, I mean that sometimes as a prisoner dies, you could pretend that person had your number, therefore you would stop existing for the administration for a bit. It is the same with uh, hiding objects. Normally, when you arrive in the camps, you must leave your luggages, clothes, and the contents of your pockets. You can keep your belongings if you're very smart. It's not easy, but it is possible. Some people, like Roger Debar with his uh, signet ring, managed. It is pretty impossible to imagine the amount of objects that accumulated within the camp. Millions of people came to Auschwitz-Birkenau, carrying luggages, mostly believing they were being resettled. Their lives were in those luggages. Their belongings were incredibly valuable, and those were stripped from them right away. Those luggages were opened, triaged, and used for the war effort. 
the worth of those luggages is simply unimaginable. Most were sent away in banks to the army or to factories as raw material. There was a literal city-sized economy being sorted in warehouses known as Canada. I will talk further about it in another episode, but it is worth knowing that there was an incredible variety of objects circulating in the camp as an underground system of barter. Roger at the bar, having a ring was not overtly unique, is what I mean. The National Front Roger Debar was part of in 1941 has nothing to do with Front National, a right-wing party in contemporary France, which has nowadays been uh, renamed Rassemblement National. That National Front, the one from the Second World War, was a French national a resistance movement created to unite all of the resistance organizations, and there were many, to fight the Nazi occupation forces and Vichy France. It was founded in Paris by Jacques Duclos, Germaine and André Piquant, and Pierre Villon. The name was inspired by the Popular Front, a left-wing coalition from the 30s. The National Front was designed to coordinate all the resistant fronts, like the one Roger Debar had set up with some friends. Those people were really at the beginning of the resistance. Most of the 45,000 were to an extent the start of the resistance. They were arrested early on, but their actions inspired many more to rise up against the Nazi threat. Roger Debar survived and would end up marrying Rennes. He was highly decorated, he was a brilliant and brave man. I made assumption regarding Roger that he survived thanks to his will to marry Rennes and to pay respect to his friend. I can't prove those assumptions. I was lucky to get in touch with Francis Debar, the son of Roger Debar and Rennes. He kindly shared his father's story to me. He sent me a lot of documents related to his arrest as well as testimonies of other deportees. Francis Debar told me an interesting story about his father. After joining the electrician commando, which he did thanks to the advice of a hairdresser as he entered the camp, Roger took the risk of changing commando, the glazing commando. It was a risk because you could lose both commandos when trying this and end up in a worse commando as well as being beaten by a capot for daring. Yet Roger noticed that the glaziers were working near a brazier in order to heat up their mastic, which meant that they were also keeping warm as they were working. So he tried and faced a trial. At first, the capo responsible for hiring the glaziers asked Roger whether he was a specialist or not. Roger nodded, even though he had no experience whatsoever. Then the capo gave him a piece of glass and asked him to cut it with a diamond. So Roger started by laying the piece of glass on the table before cutting it. The capo stopped him and ordered him to cut the glass on his knee. Roger accepted and managed to cut the glass on his own knee, which gave him a place at the glazing commando. As the capo left, a friend of Roger came to him and asked if he had any experience in glazing. Roger said he didn't. His friend told him that he had been very lucky as a diamond has two different faces, one which cuts and another which doesn't. So Roger sort of got his place by a random luck. Francis de Bar mentioned that Roger had an iron will to survive for many reasons. One of them was that he worried that if he died, the name de Bar would forever disappear. De Bar is actually a fairly common name in France, but Roger de Bar didn't necessarily know that at the time. Any meaning you give yourself to survive is a valuable reason. There are no wrong reasons to survive. Roger de Bar tirelessly kept on sharing his story what he witnessed in the camps, the torture, the smell coming from the crematorium chimneys, the sickness, the heat, the length of the roll calls in the cold. 
He believed he had made enough, enough to share his story until the end. He kept that off all his life. My sources for this story are the book um, Red Triangles in Auschwitz by Claudine Cardon-Amet, the website Deporté Politique Auschwitz.fr, Mémoire Vive, the Foundation for the Memory of Deportation website, the fantastic website Auschwitz.org. Thank you for your time and attention. Next episode will be about Joseph Schneider and the Oboué Transformator Sabotage. Thirty-one thousand, forty-five thousand. The story of two trains of French resistance. A podcast by Mathieu Landour Engel. <laughs>